Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, November 6th. In today's news, an angry dispute erupts among House Democrats. Democrats still could win Senate control with two Georgia runoffs. And as another thousand Americans die, Denmark is killing all 15 million of its minks to contain a dangerous COVID mutation. But first, the big idea. Democratic nominee Joe Biden overtook President Trump in Georgia early Friday morning as the state's Democratic-leaning counties reported more absentee ballots, giving Biden a small edge. Trump must win Georgia to maintain a pathway to an Electoral College victory. No Democrat has carried that state since 1992. But the vote counting is not yet complete. Thousands of requested overseas and military ballots may arrive by the deadline Friday, and there are still provisional ballots left to be counted. The margin has also continued to narrow in Pennsylvania, where Trump currently leads, but Biden has momentum as returns come in from Philadelphia and its suburbs. And in Arizona, Biden is ahead, but more returns are going to come in the next few hours. It's razor sharp. Trump and his allies met with two defeats in court on Thursday in Georgia and Michigan as they pressed unsubstantiated claims of fraud while officials continue to count ballots. On Thursday evening, Trump unleashed a tirade from the White House briefing room that was filled with falsehoods about the U.S. system. He continued to air grievances all night long on Twitter. His speech was so riddled with false and unfounded claims that many major news networks, including CBS, ABC and MSNBC, cut away to fact check the incumbent in real time. Trump's broadsides have have exposed tension inside the GOP, splitting Republican leaders who spoke publicly on Thursday night into warring camps, those who defended the president and those who defended the U.S. election process. Many others, including Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, are staying silent and refusing to weigh in. Trump's loyalists like Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, and Senators Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham echoed the president's evidence-free claims of widespread fraud. Strong rebukes also flew in, mostly from people who aren't afraid of Trump on the right, like Mitt Romney, the Utah senator, and Republican politicians who are retiring. But at least one person from Trump's inner circle has been pushing back publicly on the president's specious claims. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie last night denounced Trump's speech and said the president is sowing dangerous discord. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign announced its intent to file a bunch more lawsuits, including in Nevada. At a chaotic news conference in Las Vegas, campaign officials said they planned to file suit in federal court to stop the counting of what they called improper votes, but they offered no evidence of any impropriety. The Trump team is now engaged in half a dozen different lawsuits in Pennsylvania. They're literally throwing the kitchen sink. The president's allies touted a minor legal victory in Pennsylvania where a state appellate court allowed GOP poll watchers to observe the counting of ballots from six feet away. Small protests flared across the country overnight as tensions grew related to the counting. Various groups pledged to continue to be in the streets today outside ballot counting locations in Phoenix, Philadelphia, Las Vegas, Atlanta, and Detroit. Facebook last night banned a group called Stop the Steal that Trump allies have been using to organize these protests. The online efforts have unfolded not on the Republican Party's fringes, but well within its mainstream. Although some of the events say the goal is to be peaceful, some of the commentary that has been spilling forth on this Stop the Steal group veered into planning, in all seriousness, for armed conflict. 
Twitter last night banned the account associated with former Trump chief strategist Steve Bannon, and YouTube removed one of his videos after Bannon said that he wants to see the beheading of FBI Director Chris Wray and the NIH's Anthony Fauci. And overnight, police in Philadelphia detained two men after receiving a tip that an armed group from out of state was headed into the city to the city's vote counting center, where final votes are still being tallied. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the officers received information that a Humvee with two or three armed individuals was making its way to the convention center. That threat has been apparently neutralized. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as the nation remains on edge. Number one, moderate Democrats in the House blasted their liberal colleagues during a private conference call yesterday afternoon that lasted for more than three hours. The moderates said that the far left cost the party at least half a dozen seats in this week's election. Several lawmakers on the call gave detailed readouts to my colleagues Rachel Bade and Erica Werner. The centrists said Republicans were easily able to define them as socialists and radicals who endorse far-left positions like defunding the police, even though it's not true. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who narrowly leads in her re-election bid for the district formerly held by Eric Cantor uh, north of Richmond, raised her voice and used a profanity on the call as she heatedly said that if Democrats consider this week a success, quote, we will get torn apart in 2022. Spanberger said every member of the Democratic caucus needs to agree to never, ever, ever use the word socialist again. And Congresswoman Debbie Mukersel Powell, a Florida Democrat who suffered an unexpected loss to a Republican challenger, was literally sobbing on the call. Through her tears, she argued that the party's infighting on Twitter must stop. Liberals fired back. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from Washington State, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said Democrats shouldn't single out people and ideas that energize the party's base. Rashida Tlaib, the Democratic congresswoman from Michigan, a self-described Democratic socialist, one of the four members of the so-called squad, grew angry and started screaming at her moderate colleagues, telling them that they only care about appealing to white people in suburbia. Responding to Spanberger, Tlaib said, quote, To be real, it sounds like you were saying stop pushing for what black folks want. This led to more finger-pointing and recriminations. This literally went on for more than three hours. Democrats are poised to hold the smallest majority in a House in 18 years. This undercuts Nancy Pelosi's leverage. During the call, the Speaker sought to reassure her members that the election wasn't as bad as it seemed. The number three in leadership, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, said Democrats are going to get eaten alive if they keep advocating for Medicare for all and defunding the police and that they need to stop. Several moderate Democrats then said Pelosi should have made a deal with the Trump administration on a coronavirus relief package before the election. Many moderates had been pushing her to compromise, fearful that their constituents would blame them because their Democratic leaders didn't want to give Trump a legislative victory before the election. And Congresswoman Sherry Bustos from Illinois, the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, who nearly lost her seat in a surprisingly close race, is also facing wrath. On that call, Bustos strongly defended her operation and blamed bad pollsters. But then one of the members on the call noted that 130 House Democrats this year faced primary challenges from their left, which forced them to take liberal positions that this person said hurt them in the general election. So even if Biden wins, the Democratic civil war will continue. In fact, it may escalate. Number two, as the dust settled in almost every race on the Senate side, Republicans have secured 48 seats in next year's chamber and hold steady leads in two other contests. But they need to win at least one of the two races in Georgia to get a clear majority of 51 seats. 
That leaves Democrats with a caucus of 48 senators so far. One final chance to reclaim the majority with runoffs on January 5th. But they'd have to win a double victory in a Republican stronghold. If successful and if Biden wins the White House, the 50-50 Senate would tip to the Democrats once Kamala Harris is sworn in as vice president. Paul Kane reports that all four of the campaigns in Georgia, both Republicans and both Democrats, and various outside supporters expect to try to nationalize this race and focus their messaging on the impact that the victories would have for each side. Democrats will try to achieve historically high black turnout, normally associated with a presidential race. Number three, the United States reported 116,707 new coronavirus infections on Thursday alone, a new high as 20 states saw their highest daily counts yet, and the number of fatalities nationwide exceeded 1,000 for the third consecutive day. At least 234,000 Americans are dead since the beginning of the year from COVID. No region of the country is being spared from the current onslaught. The 20 states reporting record single-day increases span New England, the Midwest, the Great Plains, and the Pacific Northwest. Public health officials are expressing alarm that Americans have given up. Meanwhile, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said the pace of the economic recovery is slowing and cautioned that the surge in cases is particularly concerning for the economy's resiliency. Nationwide, the mortality rate from COVID has declined, and that is good news. Doctors have learned to use medications like the steroid dexamethasone, which Trump got, and techniques like proning, which is laying patients on their stomachs to make it easier to breathe. But Again, more than 1,000 people died yesterday, and increases in deaths tend to lag behind rises in case counts by several weeks. Authorities fully expect a major spike in deaths, we're talking more than 2,000 a day, to occur again later in November and in early December. Mortality rates could rise if hospitals continue to be overwhelmed. As the United States struggles with this, and really people have given up in many cases, other countries are taking this so much more seriously than we are. Denmark one of the largest fur producers in the world, plans to kill every single one of the country's 15 million minks in order to contain a coronavirus mutation that has been spreading back to humans. Although the coronavirus mutates constantly, this variation has prompted particular concern because 12 of the people infected showed less ability to produce antibodies, which could reduce the potential effectiveness of a vaccine and make it more fatal. Our Loveday Morris reports that genomic analysis suggests nearly 400 human COVID cases in northern Denmark were directly related to mink farms, about half of all the country's cases. Let me close, though, with a, a final thought, bringing it back to the election. As Election Day becomes Election Week, the waiting becomes the hardest part. Many Americans have had it with waiting, waiting for the all clear to go back to work or school, waiting for the vaccine, waiting for a decision on our country's future. The message from people across the political and cultural divides is united for once. It's too much. Now, as Election Day, one of our country's grandest instant gratification traditions stretches into a fourth day. And who knows how many more. Many just want it to stop. Jean Elliott Brown told Mark Fisher that this feels to her like an acid flashback. And she should know because 20 years ago in South Florida, she spent day after day recounting ballots in the 2000 version of this week's nail-biter election overtime. Some voters say the waiting is worse than the wanting, and Americans in particular are an impatient bunch. Psychologists who study patience and self-control say we're worse than almost every other country in the world. Many people say they're losing sleep, they're unable to work, or they're falling into stress eating to get through to a final result. Sarah Schnichter, a psychologist at Baylor who studies patients, says we've lost some of our capacity to wait, and the pandemic has left patients in even shorter supply. 
But my friends, patience is a virtue. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, November 6th. One last thing. Election day has passed, but what we'll learn from this moment about America, the American people, and the American story is still unfolding. That's why The Washington Post is bringing you an Amazon original podcast miniseries, drawing on the experience and insight of The Post's reporting staff and experts to retell the moments that defined this election. In this series called The Next Four Years, reporter Eugene Scott tells the story of how we got here and unpacks what the outcome of the election means for the future of our divided country. The next four years from The Washington Post premieres today exclusively on Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Ariel Plotnick. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you soon.